I'm sure a lot of your listeners have skied in Europe. And one of the things I've always enjoyed over there is you're, you're not so much just doing laps and skiing hard, but you're going from place to place and you're seeing different things. And this experience will be reminiscent of that. You know, when you're high on the mountain, you're in the alpine territory with views forever. And then you get to the timberline and the scenery and the feeling changes a bunch. And then when you get down below, you're in the subalpine and, you know, you've taken a snowcat, you've ridden a lift and you're in a shuttle bus. And it's it's a, an experience reminiscent of kind of European touring. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, back to the Pacific Northwest today, and my first episode in the great ski state of Oregon. First, your reminder to please visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the free storm skiing newsletter. The podcast is fun, but it is a small part of the storm. If you would like a regular stream of ski industry news and analysis delivered to your email inbox, you have found it. You can also follow The Storm on Instagram or Twitter at Stormski Journal for daily updates, breaking news, and just general buzz around the world of lift surf skiing. Before we get to the podcast conversation today, I am very excited to talk about my new sponsor, Spot. Let's face it, if you're a skier, the risk of injury is unavoidable, meaning if we send it too hard, we're just one crash away from crushing medical expenses not to mention less time spent on the slopes. That's why Spot partners with ski resorts like Telluride, Taos, and more to offer injury insurance with lift tickets and season passes. Spot easily integrates with any booking platform and does all the heavy lifting to ensure guests are covered on the mountain. If your guests get hurt, Spot can pay up to $25,000 of their out-of-pocket medical bills per incident with zero deductible. With Spot, skiers can focus on a full and quick recovery so they can get back on their skis and on the mountain as soon as possible. Visit stormskiing.getspot.com to partner with Spot and provide your skiers with an amazing experience while showing them that their health and safety are top priorities. A win-win for your resort and your guests. Skiers, Make sure your mountain has spot so you can shred with peace of mind this season. Learn more at stormskiing.getspot.com. That's stormskiing.getspot.com. And of course, I am still proud to partner with Mountain Gazette. Issue 196 dropped to my doorstep the other week, and it is just incredible. Photo galleries exploring the Washington Cascades, how skiing, and my home city, New York. Essays on snowboarding as Zen, Alaskan expeditions, and Mammoth Mountain founder Dave McCoy. There's even a little crash course on the mysterious coyote and, of course, the headliner, a moving look at skiing in Afghanistan before the country fell to the Taliban. But hey, don't just listen to me. Listen to my man, at Isaac underscore Gardner on Twitter. Here's what he said upon receiving his issue. Quote, I had heard the hype from at Stormski Journal, but this is more beautiful and even more appealing after only a a four kid bedtime flip through than I had imagined. Thanks at Skiing Rogi. Thanks so very much. I need this this season and for many more. End 
tweet. Don't miss the next one. Subscribe now. Enter code GOHIRE-10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions at mountaingazette.com. This code is only valid for listeners of the storm. That is GOHIRE-10, all one word. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 70, Jeff Constam, President and Area Operator of Timberline Lodge, Oregon. As I found out from my Crystal Mountain pod a few months ago, there is no skiing culture quite like Pacific Northwest skiing culture. The response to that conversation with Frank DeBerry, the CEO of Crystal, was like nothing this podcast has ever seen. And so I knew I had to get back out to the Pacific Northwest ASAP. Timberline Lodge seemed like a really good place to start. The place posts the longest ski season in the country, first of all. Second, it's making news as it strings Timberline together with the tiny summit ski area down the mountain. Timberline now has the longest contiguous vertical drop in the United States. Third, this is a big ski area that still runs as a family owned operation. That is an increasingly rare breed, as we all know, and it is fascinating to see how Constam is staying relevant and competitive in the midst of industry consolidation and the increasing prevalence of mega passes. This is a good one, and it's a long one, so I'll get right into it. Let's go. My guest today is the president and area operator of Timberline Lodge, Oregon. Timberline is located on the side of Mount Hood, which at 11,245 feet is the tallest mountain in Oregon. The ski area has 1,685 acres of skiable terrain served by eight chairlifts, including six high-speed quads and two snowcats on a 4,540-foot contiguous vertical drop, which is the tallest in the United States. The ski area is regularly open 10 months per year. The historic lodge was built as a Works Progress Administration project in the 1930s and his family has owned the ski area and lodge since 1955. Jeff Constam is my guest. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. Stuart, it's my pleasure, and it's uh, great to talk to you, and great to talk skiing in Timberline. Well, first of all, Jeff, how is the season going so far at Timberline? Did you have a successful holiday period? Uh, uh, very much so. Um, it's been interesting, uh, and uh, life is interesting these days. We <laughs> we got off to a, a bit of a late start. Um, uh, it's a La Nina year, which typically for us is volatile and comes with with uh, some heavy snowstorms. Uh, but uh, we had some nice snow in November, but that kind of went away, and uh, we didn't really get rolling until the twelfth of December when we opened. And then once it started snowing, it it really didn't stop until about two days ago. And so uh, I think on the 12th of November, we had about 20 inches on the ground. And on the 1st of January, we had 120 inches on the ground. And uh, so it, and, th- and that, you know, you want snow and, and uh, we always pray for snow, but uh, sometimes dealing with it is in that quantity is a little bit of a chore, creates difficulty with driving and where to put it and all that stuff. So so we'll take the little breather we're getting right now in the storm cycle. Yeah, I, I saw that most of the passes up in Washington were closed over the weekend from all the heavy snow they got up there. Did that affect your operations as well? Well, we had a we had a tough weather uh, weekend or week last week with with bountiful snow and some really windy conditions, 
and then one rainy day, which is what caused the problem up there with slides and whatnot. So we weren't hit as bad. And uh, our our main artery, Highway 26, that goes from uh, through the state of Oregon, but by Mount Hood, and that's the main travel route from Portland, was closed on. I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday. So, so we had uh, we, were, we had a closure too, but um, we didn't have the severity of the of the the, the landslides or the you know the snowfall in closing the roads for as long as they did in Washington. Yeah, I, yeah, I would imagine that's not an infrequent occurrence for you, Jeff. And, and when I was talking to Chip Siemens, who now runs Wyndham Mountain out in New York, uh, he said that when he worked at Kirkwood as the GM there they would have to decide and sort of plan around the storms and sometimes make sure they stayed at the mountain. So there was someone to look after it and get it ready when the passes and the roads were closed. Do you have a similar circumstance where, where sometimes you have to look ahead and say, okay, the road's going to be closed. We better set up camp right here. Well, I'll tell you what, and, and we're fortunate. Um, we, you know, we've got uh, our ODOT, our Oregon department of transportation. We have some major league heavy equipment. Um, the road coming all the way to Timberline is a state highway and it's, mm-hmm. it's, well-maintained for where it is. So that is a very, very rare occasion mm. where um, we're snowed in. Um, it, it happens, you know, twice a decade or something like that. So it's, so, you know, you can tell when it's going to be uh, tough, but we don't have contingency plans. It doesn't happen on a regular enough basis. So we just deal with it. Yeah. Well, let's start with the lodge here, Jeff. Tell us about the lodge. It's a really impressive structure. I'll include a picture of it in the article that accompanies this podcast on stormskiing.com for those who are not familiar, but but this is a really amazing building. So talk about the lodge, who built it, when and why. Yeah. So it's a depression era project. And as you know, uh, FDR uh, uh, was a president during the depression and had some interesting ideas about how to get the economy going. And uh, uh, the New Deal is kind of broadly what they referred to it as, but one of the uh, one of the departments there was the Works Progress Administration, and they largely built infrastructure type projects. WPA built the Bonneville Dam here in the Columbia River, and uh, mostly stuff like that. But um, there were some pretty well connected uh, folks in Portland who were also outdoor enthusiasts. And uh, the government was, quite frankly, looking for projects, kind of like they did with the most recent stimulus thing. Um, And these well-connected folks kind of convinced the government that a ski lodge on Mount Hood was a a great fit for the WPA. And the idea being uh, that you create all this work for folks uh, who didn't have jobs and uh, create a little economic tourist engine of a ski lodge on Mount Hood. And it's interesting, you know, the government has buckets of money and they quite frankly didn't have a ski area bucket of money, but they did have money in the federal arts uh, budget. And so uh, a large portion of the funds at that time were in uh, the, the arts budget. And so the, one of the cool uh, results was that there's all this art around Timberline Lodge and whether it's oil paintings or watercolors or wood carvings or wrought iron uh, or the fabric that's uh, on our couches. Uh, one of the goals was to uh, keep uh, the, the crafts alive. If you can think about that, we think of uh, crafts and craftsmanship kind of uh, dying out today, but back in the thirties they had the same fear. And so they took untrained artists 
and uh, put them together with trained uh, uh, artists and basically taught the trades uh, while building Timberline. So everywhere you look in the lodge, uh, there's art associated with it. And um, not arts for art's sake, but art uh, to decor a ski lodge. And the other cool aspect about Timberline is the purpose for which it was built as a ski lodge, and that's still the way it's being used today. So, um, you know, you can Google us and take a look at the lodge, but it's this quintessential ski lodge that's uh, set, you know, at the Timberline on Mount Hood. And it has a, a certain presence of its own that, as you said, is very, very unique and, um, and, and my, my terms, very cool. So your, your ski area, like many ski areas in the West operates on a forest service lease, but what about the building itself, Jeff? Is that still a government owned building that you lease or, or does your family own that now? What's, how's that whole setup? No, it's, it's, it's a partnership with, with the government and the forest service uh, owns the land, but also owns this building by virtue of the fact that it was built by the government during the depression. And so there are assets up here that are government owned uh, and they are uh, uh, associated with the permit to operate Timberline as one complex. That's the ski area and the lodge and uh, all that are part of the same uh, uh, operation and the, and the same permit. We, of course, have uh, private assets up here, things like chairlifts and uh, snowcats and, and that sort of thing, um, and some of the buildings we own as well. But the lodge is, is the government's, and uh, it should be. It's a it's a public building built uh, by the common man for the common man, pardon the gender there, um, but uh, that's the way I refer to it. Um, it's, a, it's the people's place, it's public, and it should be owned by the government. So talk about some of the, it's a spectacular building, no doubt, and, and it's, it's in that dramatic setting there, but talk about some of the challenges of operating an old building like that. When you, when you think about something like, well, they didn't have Wi-Fi in the 1930s, right? So, so I'd imagine at some point you had to retrofit it. And so, so, so both from the point of view of, of retrofit or continually modernizing uh, in an older building, and also from the point of view of, well, you probably have to get the government's permission to do some of that stuff, right? Yeah, so it, it's complex and it's interesting and it's taken us decades to kind of figure that out. Um, when my further father first kind of was uh, working and dealing with some of those issues. It's tough because the, uh, you know, the, the curtain, for instance, in a guest room or the carpet in a guest room is uh, the original stuff is, is quite frankly made by the government and this uh, old motif. And when it wears out, which things do, you need to replace it, but you, you know, you couldn't replace it the, the way it was uh, designed and crafted originally. So you you know you went to whatever you thought looked the best, and over time that 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 would uh, really diminish uh, the place and the feeling of the place, and so in the 1970s he helped create a thing called the Friends of Timberline, and the Friends of Timberline's goal is to work with local craftspeople and whatnot. It's a nonprofit uh, to to do uh, uh, projects like the textiles. Uh, in the building, uh, whether it used to be bedspreads, but the fabric on the couches and the, the curtains on the walls. Um, and what we do is we hire uh, local artists and work with groups uh, 
to manufacture those so that the motif of Timberline is as it was designed in the past. So things like that are very difficult. Um, of course, it's a National Historic Landmark, so everything you do and every surface you touch uh, has to have uh, basically a, approval to to maintain or replace. So what we've done is we've, we've created what's called a historic building preservation plan. And every time we, uh, for instance, redo a chair or something like that, uh, we create a treatment strategy. And that treatment strategy gets approved and put into our uh, building preservation plan so that once it is approved, we can maintain it at will as as it, it needs to. Um, so uh, it, those things are challenging, but once you figure out a way uh, to do it, it gets done. And it's critical, as you say, think, modernize. We, don't, we, want to, we want things to work uh, uh, functionally well, but we don't want to modernize. We want to, we want to have a, a place that's historic and seems historic. And when you come back to it, uh, uh, it's like what you remember. And, and so we do certainly have Wi-Fi and we, we do have uh, televisions in the guest rooms, much to some people's chagrin. Uh, <laughs> but things like the ADA and uh, accessibility to all uh, parts of the lodge, when we went through that process, it was quite an undertaking. We've managed to do it, um, and I think well, but and not in a way that, that takes away from the historic fabric of Timberline. But it's not as convenient as you would otherwise like, but it, uh, we certainly do accommodate people with, with disabilities here, which is, which is cool. Jeff, you, you mentioned your father and his role in sort of figuring out that process and getting a working relationship with the federal government. So let's go back to the beginning here, back to the 1950s. How did Timberline come into your family? It's a good question and kind of an interesting story. My dad grew up in Manhattan and, uh, was a social worker and he had graduated from uh, Columbia in, in that degree and had a job opportunity in Portland and Seattle. His parents had both died. And so uh, he wanted to get out of New York and just kind of flipped a coin and went to Portland and worked at a place called the Neighborhood House in Portland, working with disadvantaged boys who were in trouble. And his dream, you know, he'd gone to Maine to camp in the summers and his dream was to always kind of have a have a camp um, and be outside and, and work with young people and uh, he was working in Portland and the previous operators of Timberline had recently gone bankrupt and the the Forest Service was looking for uh, for someone to operate it and so they had a uh, uh, you know a search and a request for proposals and and my father uh, submitted one. Um, the local bankers, local restaurant and hotel people in Portland were loath to operate Timberline. It, it had never been financially uh, successful. And it's kind of interesting to, if you go back even further, um, you know, skiing wasn't really mainstream until the late 1950s and early 1960s. The people who skied were uh, Boy Scouts, for lack of a better word, people who were very self-reliant and capable and could get to the mountains uh, and hike around and ski on whatever hill they could find. Of course, you had uh, World War II in the middle of that, right after the Depression. So Timberline wasn't working. And, you know, the, the previous operators were probably a little bit uh, 
less than scrupulous. Um, but anyway, it had gone under. And so uh, dad wrote this proposal uh, and uh, and got awarded the, the deal with the Forest Service uh, in May of 1955 when he was 29 years old, which, you know, if you think about it from an opportunity standpoint, it's a considerable one. Um, but, it, you know, he had the right energy, the right view and um, uh, the wherewithal to, to pull it off. He'd traveled a little bit in Europe when he was younger. And so the, the fact that it was skiing and outside was interesting to him. But the fact that the lodge was so unique and he had seen tourists in Europe, you know, uh, flocking to kind of these older, significant pieces of architecture and thought that, you know, Timberline uh, was an attraction in and of itself uh, beyond just the fact that it was a ski area. And so that's that's how it started. And, uh, um, you know, it was uh, super difficult, but I think his timing was good. And as I explained, uh, the ski industry had a renaissance in the late 1950s. Before that, there were very few ski areas. Um, and I, I, I don't know how many, but not, not more than 20 in the United States. And so it wasn't a big thing. Uh, you know, the fellows from the 10th Mountain Division came back after serving in World War II. And, you know, things, the timing kind of fell into place where skiing was on the cover of magazines and whatnot. I, I, you know, in the early days, uh, you know, there were uh, articles in Sports Illustrated and Life Magazine about Timberline and what was going on in, in skiing. And so it, it became kind of the cool thing uh, then. And uh, people uh, were vacationing and, and traveling more in the wintertime and not only the summertime. And, uh, you know, things kind of fell into place for skiing. So the economics of it uh, changed uh, at the same time that uh, my father uh, started operating the business, which was fortuitous. I'm not sure if you have this context, Jeff, but do you do you have a sense of what the ski area looked like when he showed up? I mean, was there skiing all the way up to Palmer? Were there chairlifts? What was it just a rinky-dink operation? Like, what what was what was the footprint of the Timberline ski area when he actually took it over? Yeah, so um, there was a chairlift. Uh, the, the Magic Mile chairlift was built 1939, um, and uh, the top terminal of it is Silcox Hut, which we oh, cool. use as a uh, groups and families can stay up there. It sleeps 24 people. It had a warming hut and the, the old engine room is the bunk room now. And we take people up in a snow cat and they have dinner and revel for the evening and then breakfast cool. and either ski out or take the snow cat out. So that was built in 39, third chairlift next to the two at Sun Valley in the country. And that was there. Uh, and we had some rope toes as well. And, and back then, uh, 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 people kind of just hiked around to ski. You know, ski areas were a little bit different. They weren't so uh, organized uh, with ski area boundaries. People, you know, when Timberline was built, it was built proximate to the mountain and people just kind of went where they wanted to do. And as time uh, grew, uh, you know, th those things became more organized and things like the Wilderness Act 1964. There were places that were appropriate to develop a ski area and, pro and places that weren't. And uh, so, uh, you know, Timberline's always been a ski area. Uh, it just is more well-defined now than it used to be. But back in the day, there was the mile chairlift and uh, some rope toes. And in 1956, we built the Poochie chairlift, uh, which was the, the first chairlift below the lodge. 
so take us through this evolution, Jeff, as, as best you can. So your, your father shows up and he, and it sounds like he kind of grew up with the ski industry. And, and as I mentioned in the intro, Timberline has a pretty incredible lift fleet, half dozen high speed quads. You have a gondola probably hopefully going in. So, so just take us, you know, as briefly as you can through the decades of how your father transformed Timberline from kind of a backwater, which is kind of what skiing was, as you said, in those decades to a modern facility that's widely regarded as, as one of the best ski areas in the state? Well, um, sir, yeah, it's, it's a slow evolution, and I don't think there's necessarily just, a, 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 you know, kind of like a, a purposeful strategy other than to stay relevant with uh, skiing as it, as it developed and changed. Um, of course, uh, lift access uh, was is uh, critical there and uh, developing chairlifts in, in the right spots. Early on, we we used, uh, we had these old Tucker Snowcat buses, and uh, that's how we did our summer skiing before we built the Palmer chairlift. And we would take people up uh, on the side of the mountain and, and, and let them ski down. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, the, the, the Magic Mile chairlift is in its third iteration now. It was built in 1939 and replaced in 1962 in a different location. Uh, it was built originally where the snow drifts pretty heavily. So we uh, put it on uh, to the west on a ridge. And then in 1992, replaced that with a detachable lift. And that was our first detachable lift at, at, at Timberline. Um, so, for instance, that serves this, the same terrain. But as, 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 as time moves on, you need to... Uh, keep your uh, equipment well-maintained and, and uh, not necessarily keep up with the Joneses, but have uh, relevant, good quality facilities that people want to ski. And it went from a one-place chairlift to a two-place chairlift to a four-place detachable lift. Um, and the detachability is, is critical for us above the tree line. So we take the carriers off every night, storm at a barn, keep the rope moving at night so it doesn't, uh, Build up with ice, and so that the Palmer chairlift obviously wasn't there in the past, and we built that in originally 1977, and that goes another mile and a half above uh, the top of our, our mild chairlift. Um, and uh, in the beginning, that was a fixed grip riblet chairlift that uh, we basically mothballed in the winter. Um, the first couple of years, it, it uh, an ice storm took out, uh, I think three or four towers. We retrofitted it with uh, with tripod, stronger towers, but still the, the carriers and the rope kind of had to be brought in at night. And and when I came back to work at Timberline and in the late 80s, um, you know, I was bound and determined to be able to operate that lift in the wintertime. And so we uh, replaced the 77 lift with a, with a detachable chairlift in 1996. And the theory was is that we would, we would, uh, you know, the carriers come off every night, but we would keep the rope running during storms and keep the ice from building up on it and uh, not have the tower failures that we did in the, in the past with the old lift. And so in, it blew down twice. Oh, wow. <laughs> this is, is the answer to the story. So uh, <laughs> in one storm, we lost uh, five towers and another one, I think, four and, and like uh two successive years. So it's just, you know, it's, it's the, the weather and the, the conditions we have on uh, Palmer. The reason that you can ski up there uh, all summer is because 
of all of that weather. Uh, so, so uh, what we've done now is uh, we 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 put it to sleep for the winter and we ski up there with snowcats on days when when uh, when we can get up there and uh, uh, it keeps the access open. Uh, and quite frankly, you know, between storm cycles to get the lift prepared uh, to operate by the time you uh, get it ready to go, the next storm's coming in. So it really, you know, chasing your tail on that one. And so I, I kind of defeated on my theory there that, uh, and I'm older and wiser and we're, you know, mother nature's going to win every time and we're just working, working with her. It's such a unique environment that you're operating on there, Jeff. And it's really a unique story as well with this multi-generational family ownership of this mountain. And, and you see that less and less as more and more of these big mountains get sold off to consolidation. So so let's just back up into the family story a little bit here. What was that like for you growing up with a ski area in the family? And, and what are your first memories of Timberline? Yeah, you know, Stuart, it's kind of indistinguishable, I guess. You know, we, we, uh, we had a house in Portland. We went to school down there. But until I was, you know, in kindergarten, I was pretty much at Timberline every day. And we kept a couple rooms up here, which, uh, uh, was very interesting, uh, but spent virtually, you know, every day of my young life, uh, up here, uh, and weekends in, in the wintertime. And so, I don't know, it's like almost growing, you know, what are your earliest memories of your household sort of type of question? You know, we had little trikes we ran around the lobby in and bothered guests and, but, uh, it, you know, it was, it, it was fun and interesting. You know, I think uh, I, if I look back on it, um, you know, certainly skiing as a young person and uh, but probably most importantly were the employees uh, and the people who worked with my father who were friends and whether they were ski instructors or housekeepers or uh, cooks or bartenders or snowcat drivers, uh, they were all uh, pretty tight knit. Um, uh, group of people and uh, were sort of friends of the family. And so those are kind of my memories of, uh, of, of growing up. And I've, I've got plenty of stories of trouble we got into out on the hill and trouble we got into running around the lodge. Um, but it's just childhood memories. And, you know, I, I didn't know any different. So it just kind of was what it was. <laughs> did you get special treatment or, or did they uh, patrol treat you just like anyone else? Yeah, so um, uh, the answer is probably, uh, well, is no, but probably worse than no in the sense that, you know, you're the boss's kid and, and you know, dad, you know, instilled in us firmly that, you know, you know you're know you just a regular person out there and you don't get any favors. And then there were employees who kind of, you know, made sure that we, we knew that. <laughs> so... So, and my brothers, I have three brothers and, and we never, we never purposely took advantage of that. Now, there's, there's obviously, you know, stuff that happens and, and we're always well taken care of as kids, but, um, but uh, we tried to kind of, to keep it on the up and up and, and, and be good soldiers. So how old were you when you started working at the ski area and what was your first job? So, you know, I, I, uh, um, I, we did little things, but I guess my first formal job, I, I washed glasses in the bar and, um, was, I was 13. And so on weekends, I just sit behind the bar and wash glasses all day. Um, and that was fun because I was young and behind the bar and that was good. 
And then uh, other jobs that I had were, were a little bit more outdoor working with uh, the lift crew and the lift maintenance folks. And when I say lift maintenance, I was just schlepping stuff, you know, handing wrenches <laughs> and going and getting stuff and sweeping and cleaning up things. Um, and uh, I did the, the night audit uh, uh, one summer during college. Um, but Stuart, I, you know, it was interesting. I, you know, I, I, it, it was different working for my dad and working at Timberline because of all those things that you talked about. And so I kind of endeavored to go work other places. And so in high school, I worked at a old town pizza in, in Portland, Oregon, uh, just cooking pizzas on, on the weekends. Uh, and, uh, I've, uh, when I, uh, was uh, in high school and college, I'd, I'd worked for, for other people. And after I graduated from college, I worked for for different hotel companies. And the idea being that, uh, you know, you learn different stuff from different places. And and so, I, you know, I, I, I kind of guess I learned how to work, not working for my father, but working for other folks. And what brought you back to Timberline? Well, um, I... Uh, uh, in high school, I, I can remember, uh, you know, the career counselor said, Jeff, you gonna, uh, what do you want to do? And I hadn't really thought about that. And, you know, I thought, well, you know, dad has a pretty good job. Uh, you know, what, what schools can you go to to kind of figure out how to be in the hospitality business? And so uh, I, I looked around a bit and, and applied to go to uh, the hotel school at Cornell up in Ithaca, New York, and was fortunate to get in there. And again, after uh, uh, graduation, I, I worked at uh, different hotels in Los Angeles and New York. And then the, the, the timing was uh, about right. And I had a good conversation with dad. And uh, uh, he allowed me to come back and, and work with him. Uh, that would have been 1987. So I can't believe how time flies, but it seems not that long ago to me. So when did you decide that you were actually going to take over the family business? And at what point did that actually happen? Well, again, you know, there's family dynamics with with that. And I had uh, my two brothers who are similar age. I have a younger brother, six years younger. We're doing different things. My brother Kevin was in Brooklyn, New York. And my brother John was in uh, Boston or Washington, D.C. doing real estate. I, I can't remember. And, um, you know, I had intention uh, to work at uh, – Timberline. Uh, it's the reason I went away to or chose the hospitality route, and um, and then came back and started working uh, with my father in '87. Like I said, my brothers and I are are pretty competitive, and there's just not you know there there wasn't a, a lot of room for more than one personality uh, to be to be working up here. Quite frankly, uh, they might have a a different view of it, but I was I was interested. Uh, I was determined and, uh, you know, um, uh, was here every day uh, 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 trying to figure out a way to fit in. So as you reflect back on that and, and reflect back on your dad's legacy and, and how he brought the Timberline into the modern age, I'd imagine there's a sense of kind of pride in that and also a sense of duty, responsibility to carry on this family legacy. Just talk about that element a little bit and that dynamic and, and how you view your role as the the man in charge of Timberline today? Yeah, well, that's a, a great question. And, um, you know, my uh, my dad, they often refer to him as the, you know, the person who saved Timberline because the, 
you know, one of the options when he uh, made that proposal to the Forest Service was to decommission it and tear it down. And then at that mm. point, it was only 18 years old. Um, and um, so, so he, you know, he had, he was, he, you know, later on in his career, he did a little, his little coffee table books and that's called Timberline, a love story. And it, it truly was. Um, and as I said before, my dad was a social worker and, and the way he, he kind of managed that was, was uh, with a lot of collaboration. He was a, a genius at uh, uh, getting people to kind of pull the rope in the same direction and get people to work together on uh, whatever task was at hand. And, you know, Timberline being such an interesting, cool place was a noble effort. And he was very successful at, at getting folks to kind of see and also help him with that. Um, and, and so it, he, his management style was, was, was very kind of unassuming and collaborative and uh, the, the ability to get uh, people uh, together for a common purpose is really uh, how how he achieved that. And, you know, you've uh, continued to evolve the ski area, Jeff. And and one of the big moves you made was in 2018. You acquired the Summit Ski Area just down the mountain. How did the opportunity to buy this area come up, and why did you buy it? Uh, yeah, interesting question, Stuart. You know, it it you know obviously been around forever, and it was available before and um, for whatever reason, um, I didn't, uh, take advantage of the opportunity earlier. Um, and, uh, the, uh, the person who was operating was his parents were old family friends of my parents. Uh, and, uh, he was plugging away down there. It's a very small 53 acre permit area with a 1980 riblet chairlift and a, and a rope toe and a tubing hill. Um, but it's in uh, very proximate to you know our side of the the mountain and contiguous with the terrain down to our community. Uh, uh, the name of the town's government camp, interesting name for a town and story for a different time. But um, uh, I you know it was one of those deals where it and Char- Charlie is the previous operator, Charlie Wessinger, and and we talked in the past and. And we, you know, it was one of those deals where the, his price I thought was ridiculous and <laughs> and he thought mine was ridiculous. Right. And so we kind of just, it was, you know, a standoff. And just one day uh, in the shower, one of those type moments, we're driving along or staring at the ceiling in the middle of the night, I said, well, you know, if, if I don't do this now, it's, it's never going to happen in my lifetime. And the dream had always been to connect Timberline uh, uh, to the community of government camp for a number of reasons, but one is the transportation issues that we have. Um, and so uh, just kind of decided on uh, compulsively that, that that was the right time. Uh, tremendous amount of work to get it to be uh, part of the ski area. I knew that and it wasn't, it, it, nothing's assured in this world and that certainly wouldn't be. It's public land. Uh, it's difficult uh, to, get, uh, uh, you know, permits and approvals to do anything. Um, so, uh, you know, it was a, a bit of a gamble. Um, uh, so th- that was the purpose behind that. We had we had uh, done some master planning at Timberline proper, the old Timberline permit area, and we purposely kind of excluded things beyond our permit area 
and and part of the reason was to kind of avoid some of those bigger, heavier lift uh, uh, issues with transportation uh, and whatnot. And when we went around and talked to uh, focus groups on our plans and tried to get input into what we should and shouldn't do, uh, there was overwhelmingly uh, a, a sentiment that we should think uh, in in a broader sense and look, you know, past Timberline's permit boundary to uh, uh, things like, you know, a gondola connection to government camp. And so that kind of helped us with that decision to to uh, bite the bullet and, and really take, a, you know, a good hard look at, at doing this. And we're in the beginning stages of that now. It's going well so far, but a lot of work, a lot of work to do. So Summit is, compared to Timberline, is a very small ski area, just 300 vertical feet, traditionally a beginner's area for locals. But there's a lot of vertical between the bottom of Timberline and the top of Summit, right? And that's kind of where the money is, is is, is you'll be able to connect. And, and you actually did that finally over the summer to connect both of the ski areas. Uh, so, so talk about that connection and how skiers will get from top to bottom and bottom to top along that full, yeah. full, as I said, now the largest contiguous vertical drop in America, but it's but it's quite an around the world in 80 days kind of journey to, to do it. Right. It's a little Rube Goldberg. It's not, you know, <laughs> usually the, that stat is associated with lift access and it isn't, you know, so there's an asterisk there. It isn't all mm-hmm. lift ass access yet, but it will be. Um, so Summit, Summit is the oldest ski area in uh, the Northwest. It was established in 1927 before Timberline. And when I say ski area, it was on the side of the highway. And uh, it was in you know snow country and people came up on the weekends and kind of hiked and flopped around in the snow there. But it was established by the Portland Advertising Club uh, way back then. So it's got its own uh, history in and of itself. And it's always been a kind of a beginner, uh, very approachable place for people to enter the sport of uh, skiing and just be in the snow and be in the mountains. And and that's something that we think is very important and that we want to um, uh, maintain and honor going forward. So we've renamed that to Summit Pass. It's a little bit confusing calling the summit, you know, which is at the lowest elevation of our ski area. <laughs> So right. it's Summit Pass, which refers to the highway, Highway 26, which goes over the summit there at, at uh, Government Camp. So we're referring it to it as Summit Pass. And that, Stuart, it, it, you know, you, you you haven't been here, so um, I, I understand. But the terrain in between uh, the lowest part of our ski area and Summit is, um, you know, it's it, it, it's very modest in, in terms of um, – uh, uh, the steepness and it's uh, it's it's more just to get between here and there. It's interesting and fun, but it it it, it the the train isn't of itself something that you would seek out to uh, go and uh, pioneer for for skiing terrain. It's interesting and it's it, and it's uh, really useful because it helps create that connection between Timberline and Government Camp. And there are some historic trails and roads that have always kind of gone between Timberline and Government Camp. The West Lake Road, which is our beginner trail that goes from Timberline all the way down to Summit, is is actually that a road. It was back when Timberline was built. There was a one way road up and a one way road down, and that's that's the road down West Lake Road. And then there's the Alpine Trail, which was uh, 
was built. Um, it started in the 20s, I believe, um, before Timberline, where people, there were a few uh, little uh, cabins, one of which we uh, call Flox Point, uh, and we sell tacos out of it right now. Oh, nice. But, but it was a Boy Scout cabin for a long, long time. And people would, uh, you know, uh, either get a skin up or hike up and, and ski these historic trails down. And so the Alpine Trail is is one of those. And so um, it uh, the, the interesting about the Timberline ski area, the way that it's, it's uh, evolved over time, it's very vertical in orientation where um, most skiers are horizontal in orientation. And the thing that that allows us to do is, uh, you know, if it's a low snow year and balmy weather, we we're, we have a lot more activity up high on the mountain. If it's a stormy year like it has been for the last six weeks, we're kind of lower on the mountain. And we kind of move up and down the mountain as, as the weather goes and as the seasons go. Um, and so th- this is just an accentuation of that. Um, you know, it's five miles if you just run it straight from the top of Palmer to the bottom of Summit Pass. And it's 4,500 vertical, which I think is is fun and interesting. Um, you know, and, and the way we're looking at this going forward with the gondola connection, the gondola will go from Summit Pass all the way up to the Timberline at 6,000 feet with an intermediate station. And the lower portion, the idea is that beginners will utilize that lower portion throughout the day. It won't just be a transportation lift. And that people who are... Uh, our, our normal mainline skiers will will probably choose to, uh, although you can't ski all the way down to the bottom, uh, probably choose to stop that intermediate station to lap it because the train is is more interesting uh, from there up. And so the idea is this intermediate station would have a few carpets, uh, some ski school, uh, be a beginner area, uh, some tubing lanes, and some, some uh, overnight yurt. Uh, campsites to allow people to ski in and ski out summer and winter. Um, and, <clears throat> and that way, you know, gondolas are, are, are really nice for people who haven't skied before because you just step on and step off uh, and you don't have to deal with loading and then unloading a chairlift. So that's kind of the idea there. Uh, it it will be a, uh, a great ski lift. Uh, it'll be transportation for our employees, but it'll be transportation for tourists as well and that's uh you know 12 months a year we probably won't operate it 12 months but probably 11 um and so people who want to come visit the historic timberline lodge uh it'll create a great experience for them to be able to ride a conveyance and have the views like that uh and come and be able to disembark uh, right at the 6000 foot elevation which is the front steps of timberline or 6000 feet yeah, I know that that gondola is is probably what the folks that I talk to about Timberline are most excited about, and and I want to come back to that in a moment. I just want to talk briefly about how you actually get to the top now, oh, because yeah, it, it I, requires a, yeah. a, 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 a a few creative transportation mechanisms, and I, and I think you've right. enhanced that service this year. So break that down for us. Well, so thanks, and I, I, I that's where I was going, and I got lost in myself, so I apologize. Um, oh, good. But so because of the Palmer situation, we snowcat ski up there. So um, you'll you'll ride a snowcat. And so the way we snowcat ski at Timberline, because the terrain you're skiing is lift access or would be lift access if, if, the, if the chairlift were open. Now, for the price of your lift ticket, uh, you, you know, there's a waiting line and stuff like that to get on the snowcat. But uh, 
We'll run the snowcat seven days a week, weather permitting, when we can access Palmer. And so then to ski, if you ski all the way down uh, to Summit Pass, uh, there isn't a chairlift between the top of Summit Pass lift and the bottom of the Jeff flood lift. So we run uh, a shuttle, uh, uh, three buses on peak days and one bus uh, on the on the midweek quieter days, uh, seven days a week uh, from Summit Pass back up to uh, uh, the parking lot at Timberline. So to do that, you'll ski, uh, you'll ride a, a, a snowcat and ski to the bottom of uh, the the uh, summit and then ride a, a shuttle bus back up. But it's all included in the in the price of your lift ticket. And, you know, one day, hopefully in the not too distant future, uh, you'll be able to ride a gondola. <laughs> it's it's quite an adventure. And, uh, and I understand that you, you really increased the frequency of that snowcat service this year. How has that gone so far, Jeff? Now that you've gone through a few storm cycles, how often have yeah. you actually been able to run that cat? Well, um, you know, it's been tough this year. And so yeah. the, 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 the mile lift, which isn't even all the way up to where the Palmer lift is, uh, I think we've operated three days so far this winter. Oh, wow. Um, the first day of operation was January 1st. And uh, we had a beautiful weekend last weekend. The first Saturday was storm recovery, getting ice off of it. Sunday we were set to go and the wind picked up and we, we couldn't operate it. Um, so there are winners when um, – uh, the upper mountain doesn't get access that much, but there are uh, winters when uh, it might be 75% of the days. So it just depends. And these next two weeks, the weather looks really promising to be able to be up on the, on the high mountain. And you said experience and it is experience. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners have skied in Europe and whatnot. And one of the things I've always enjoyed over there is your you're not so much just doing laps and skiing hard. You certainly, a lot of people doing that and, and, and that's fun, but you're going from place to place and you're seeing different things. And it, it, this experience will be reminiscent of that. You know, when you're high on the mountain, you're in the Alpine territory, well above tree line with views forever. And then you get to the timber line and, and it, it the, the scenery and the feeling changes a bunch. And, then when you get down below, you're in the subalpine and, you know, you've taken a snow cat, you've ridden a lift and you're in a shuttle bus. And it's, it's a, it's an experience, but snow just came off the roof. It's a, an experience um, reminiscent of that, uh, of kind of European touring. And, you know, you, you probably won't be lapping that whole thing uh, mm-hmm. uh, all day, but you'll certainly want to do it once. And it's certainly quite an experience uh, for, for fo- folks. Yeah, I thought it was a really creative way to knit together uh, uh, two very separate, historically separate ski areas. And and I, I really look at this, and, and I think you do as well, as, as step one to a long-term plan. So I know the gondola you spoke about is part of a master plan, and, and I do want to talk about the gondola a little more specifically. But lay this master plan out for us, Jeff. And you, What is the master plan? How would it transform Timberline? And what's the status of this? Okay. Uh, yeah, happy to update you there. So, so what we did is we... We, you know, there were two separate permits and two separate ski areas. And when you're on federal land, um, the one of our uh, permit requirements is that we have a, a master plan that we submit to the Forest Service for their acceptance, not their approval, but their acceptance. And when they accept it, it means that it kind of meets the the guidelines of the forest plan and it, it's within 
uh, you know, uh, what is expected from a developed winter recreation site. So uh, because we had two ski areas at the time, uh, we have two master plans. And so Timberline had its own master plan and Summit had its own master plan. Um, and then uh, this last October 1st, um, we consolidated the two uh, uh, permits into one permit. And so really by virtue of the fact that uh, that that change happened, we needed to consolidate the master plans as well. And so uh, these ideas uh, are were kind of intimated in the two other master plans, but then uh, with this master plan, they're, you know, they're, they're wholly enshrined. And so the status of that is we submitted it to the uh, Forest Service in mid-December this year, and they're reviewing it for their acceptance. They haven't accepted it yet. We expect them to do so, and hopefully soon. And by their acceptance, just to reiterate, that uh, doesn't mean that those things are, are approved. It means they meets their guidelines. And then we would go about the process of determining what aspects of that master plan that we would want to make a formal proposal with. And once we do that, it starts uh, sort of the NEPA process, which is uh, the environmental uh, framework and studies to do that. And this would be a full environmental impact statement, which is exhaustive and and take you know several years to accomplish. So once once it's accepted we'll see where we go from there um and uh you know my my thought is is uh, you know and i'm always optimistic but you know it's something like a 5 to 10 year timeline um and being being in a position to propose it in the next two is 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 realistic so the centerpiece of this from an infrastructure point of view is that gondola we were talking about earlier. And the plans that I've seen had that gondola crossing over the Jeff Flood lift and landing between Jeff Flood and Poochie. And you mentioned a, a mid-station, which I hadn't processed before. So so where would that mid-station be if you can orient us on the current trail map? And is the top terminal still there between Jeff Flood and Poochie? Yeah. So... Um... Yeah, so the intermediate station is about a third of the way up. It's above uh, about half as long again as the current uh, summit lift that's there, um, right at the b- bottom of Mazama Hill. If if you're uh, looking on on uh, our trail map, the as soon as the the master plan is accepted, we'll publish it on our website so everyone can take a look at it there. It's timberlinelodge.com and and uh, you'll be able to. To, to find it there. And then um, with a lot of discussion with uh, chairlift manufacturer and, and um, our ski area consultants who help us plan this stuff, we uh, we determined to keep the, the top terminal of the gondola out to the west so it won't cro- cross over any other lifts, which technically you can do, um, but it creates, it creates some issues that if you don't have to, you know, it, you're probably better off not. And then the other issue was congestion where, where I had originally kind of thought uh, the ideal spot would be. It's, it brings uh, the, the tourists uh, a little bit further away from the lodge than, um, than, uh, you know, would be necessarily ideal, but I think, I think it works out pretty well. Um, You're at elevation. So people who, uh, who come to Timberline right now? If you if you park in our lower parking lot and walk to the lodge, you you have to hike uphill quite a bit, and it's it's a p- pretty similar distance where the top terminal will land 
to where uh, uh, to, uh, you know similar distances you if you walk from the parking lot, uh, the lower parking lot. So it's it's proximate. It it helps uh, with the congestion issue. It puts you as a skier in the ski run uh, proper, and as a as a mountain biker, it puts you uh, right at the top of our mountain bike park. So there's a lot of real benefits to it. Uh, the the plan includes a little coffee uh, deal and uh, a viewing platform and uh, uh, some restrooms there. So it'll have a little presence of itself over there. And if we were if we were any uh, closer in the middle of all of the other lifts, probably wouldn't be able to do that. Um, so I, I'm I'm happy with that. You know, when we go to propose this, we'll have to have different options and whatnot, and we'll. And and that's where you discover whether there's issues that uh, we are currently aren't contemplating that we'll have to consider. So these plans are ideas at this point, and and once we uh, work on the details of it, you know other considerations might come up. So so we might have to pivot a little bit, but that's the idea for now. So the so the mid station would be would come out. It would start at the summit ski area near where the current old riblet starts go up to the Timberline area, have a mid-station, and then terminate where on the current trail map, like as far as trails and everything goes? So I, 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 didn't, I didn't quite follow you there. So, so there's one intermediate station on the gondola planned. And so the, the idea is the, the, the base of the gondola is down at the, right where the current parking lot is or above that uh, at Summit Pass. And the intermediate station is at the bottom of what I call Mazama Hill or um, just above where the current um, summit lift is, uh, probably half of, half the length of that chairlift above the top terminal. And then the top terminal of the gondola is uh, just below the top terminal of the Jeff Flood lift to the west. Okay, terrific. Yep, I'm following you now. Okay, great. Okay. So, so this – what are you looking at for a gondola? Eight-passenger, ten-passenger? Uh, you have any, any ideas for – what we've looked at is a 10 passenger uh, uh, D drive, you know, the, mm. the new, new technology that's quieter and faster. And it would be about a, a 10 and a half minute. You know, I, I haven't really calculated the slowdown at the intermediate, but let's call it 11 minute ride from, uh, from Summit Pass up to Timberline. And it's a, it's a 2.4 mile uh, uh, length of, uh, 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 you know, length of the, the conveyance. That would be really awesome. So in no, order it'd be, to it'd be a cool lift, they're they're yeah. very excited to to sell it to me. I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I rode the new, I, I rode the new D line at Loon Mountain, the new eight passenger chairlift they have right. a few weeks ago, and oh, that, that thing is just an unbelievable machine. So, yeah. Um, yeah. best of luck to you with that. I know it's a huge yeah. project. Um, in order to get this installed, the plans that I've seen is that you would replace the summit riblet double with a fixed grip quad and move it a little, but break that down for us. Yeah. So, um, you know, the people talk about old, uh, chairlifts and whatnot. And, and my, my take on it is as long as they're well-maintained and, um, and, and, uh, inspected, uh, they're very serviceable. And, you know, the riblet chairlift that we have there is built in 1980. And the, the nice thing about it compared to our more sophisticated detachable lifts is there's, there's just a whole lot less to go wrong and to have to deal with and to maintain. It operates very slowly because it's a beginner lift. Um, 
So the idea is that uh, we would shorten that list. The bottom terminal would move up the hill a little bit, but we could keep that same alignment. And quite frankly, you know, in the master plan, you know, at some point we would re replace that lift, but um, we'll see how operationally it works with the, with the intermediate station and the gondola. And if, if that suffices, um, you know, the, 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 the fixed grip chairlift down there is, is a little bit redundant, but it, it may not, and it may still need to be there. So we'll see. We, we kept a replacement in the master plan to have it there, but, you know, the idea might be that we just pull it out if the, if the, the intermediate station in the gondola is working well. Another really interesting lift that you have, Jeff, is Bruno's. It's a 46 vertical foot rise. It has just one tower. It's, it's a, it's a really cute little lift, and and uh, I, I always like those little beginner lifts. It kind of it kind of feels like a, a fun experience for the kids. But the plan that I've seen in the master plan is take that thing out, drop in three carpets, which I imagine is probably a little more beginner friendly experience. But what's your current thinking around Bruno's and, and what you'd like to do with your beginner area up at Timberline? Yeah, so uh, we've kind of changed our view on that a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when when we were talking about removing that lift and putting carpets in, we we didn't have this intermediate station on the gondola in mind. Mm, and that's yeah. where that activity would take place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, in ski school, if, if, if you have, especially the youngsters, the little kids, you know, they can be doing great on the slopes and, and, and riding a carpet, but unless they ride on a chairlift, they don't think they went skiing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, and at a certain point in time, you do need to, understand how to uh, load and unload a chairlift. And so although there's not a, a lot of terrain associated with that lift, it does fulfill that for folks. But, you know, if we were, if we were relying solely on that space for our, uh, our, our kids program, it'd probably make more sense from a space utilization standpoint to remove that chairlift and add carpets. But we're currently thinking we'll do that at the intermediate station. Yeah, it echoes what uh, Charles Jefferson, who owns Montage Ski Area in Pennsylvania, told me. And he has an, another little lift that's just about the same size as Bruno's. And I said, have you thought about putting in a carpet? And he said, well, you don't learn anything on a carpet. You know, you, you eventually, like you just said, you have to get off the chairlift. So because right. he was he was probably 55 when he bought the ski area and he'd never skied before. So he had to learn. So he has this fresh of what it's like to learn. And he said, <laughs> right. well, I, I learned how to use the lift. So, so right. he, that one's not going anywhere. Yeah, we uh -huh. back, back back in the old days, we had a, just a chair on a pole sitting out near the ski school area, so yeah. people could sit on it. You know, <laughs> um, so there's something to that. Yeah, yeah. Growing up in the Midwest, we we learned on rope toes. So so nowadays, the kids the kids have it easy. My kids have it easy. Yeah. Right. So Perfect. looking around the rest of the of the mountain, you have a as I said a while back, a, a really nice lift fleet a half dozen high-speed quads, one of those Poochies brand new. But I, I'd imagine that you're always thinking about the future. Uh, what's your wish list for upgrades here, Jeff? Yeah, so, you know, like I said, you know, I think we want to stay uh, well-maintained. And, you know, in terms of uh, uh, ski equipment, we want to be modern and and uh, what people expect and stay relevant. You know, we've got probably 20 snowcats and, you know, the wow. – uh, you know, a really good grooming fleet. Um, and our chairlifts are all, you know, detachable uh, chairlifts. You know, I guess the first one I built the mile in 92 was 
starting to get long in the tooth, but, you know, we'll keep those maintained. And, and um, as, as uh, time moves on and technology changes, there might be uh, upgrades to that, but uh, our, our trail system is, is, you know, it's, it's pretty set in stone. Uh, There's not, you know, like I said, we're, we're, we're very vertically oriented. The Richard L. Constam wilderness is on, our east and the Mount Hood Wilderness is on our west and Highway 26 is to the south and the top of the mountains to the north. So there's not really uh, places to go. Um, and and I, I'm fine with that. You know, uh, bigger isn't necessarily better. Uh, Timberline, uh, we have, you know, we have uh, modest terrain uh, for families and whatnot in, in the winter and that's our market. Uh, but we like what we do. We uh, like who we are. We like who we serve. And um, we're sticking with that. Do you think there's there's room for or need for a sixth place lift at any point? Or do you like these quads? Well, um, you know, it's there you're talking about capacity. And so, you know, some of our, our chairlifts could we could increase the capacity with more carriers and more shiv assemblies. Um, the, the, uh, the six packs or eight packs, um, you, you can do the same thing with and get a lot more capacity, but it's really about a, a, the balance between your slopes and your uphill capacity. You know, you're, you want those to have a, a, a good balance. If you have too much uphill capacity and not enough downhill capacity and the, the, the slopes are too crowded, what's the point of that? And, mm-hmm. you know, so it's a it's a balance between you know the length of the lift line, uh, the the how uh, crowded the slopes are, um, and you know how many passes or or tickets you're willing to sell, uh, so that you have a quality experience. And it's a balance in there. You know, if for some reason we couldn't build the gondola, and we, uh, you know, the uh, our proposed option or our preferred option of a gondola got shot down, and we were steered in the direction of having to build a chairlift from summit to the bottom of Jeff flood, then we'd want to look at some capacity issues with those and a six pack on both of those might be uh, something you'd have to look at. You know, the six packs do different things with the line and the queuing and you need to have the right space and um, to do that. And you need to have the clientele who are keen on that. So it, it, you know, the, the, the the more uh, spaces on the carrier complicates the queuing situation. So, um, you know, I'm not, I, you know, I think they're great. I love them. I, I, I don't see a need for them at Timberline at this point, but, you know, at some point in the future, maybe we'll see. So while we're talking about capacity, let's talk about parking a little bit. And, and you've, you've referenced your transportation issues a little bit. And by that, I'm assuming you mean just the elevation that the Timberline Lodge is built at. Because if you look at the trail map, you can see this this lodge is pretty high up and I don't know the exact elevation and I'm sure you can tell me. Uh, but it's 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 one of the rare Western mountains that has a lodge sort of mid-mountain or, or actually pretty much near the top of the skiable area for much of the season, it seems like. So, yeah. so you have a couple different thoughts here and, and, I, and you've referenced uh, maybe that gondola going down to summit. I'm not sure if you can expand parking down there. I, I know you have had ideas for uh, putting in a, a parking area at Molly's, but break this down for us. What, what are the transportation issues? How does elevation affect that? And how, how can these different proposals and this connection you have potentially mitigate some of these? 
Yeah. We look at, Stuart, this as sort of a, a catalyst to try and help the overall transportation challenges we have on the mountain. We're not the only ski area on Mount Hood. There's Mount Hood Meadows, which is uh, very popular, and especially in the winter, draws probably three times as many skiers than we do on, on a busy day. Uh, Mount Hood Ski Bowl and Government Camp. And then there's there's Central Oregon and Bend, um, where there's a lot of folks who uh, spend weekends over there. And our our highway that goes in, you know to the bottom of our access road is Highway 26, which is the, the busiest road in Oregon, except for the two interstate freeways. And nice. so you can uh, see if you add a little bit of snow and if uh, things align and it's the perfect bluebird uh, Sunday, like it was last Sunday, you know, you can get traffic Armageddon. And so the idea of the gondola is uh, certainly we uh, need some uh, more parking down there in our current master plan that we're submitting right now. There's something like in the neighborhood of 650 spots. We only have 1,200 spots up at the lodge. And then, you know, the tertiary base area that if the summit thing ever happens and we still feel that uh, the, the need for, you know, if the demand dictates it, uh, some more parking at the bottom of the, of the Molly's chairlift. But um, again, you know, you want, we want to create that balance. Uh, the ski area is kind of planned to be able to do about uh, 4,900 skiers. And we currently do about uh, uh, 2,800 on a busy day. So there is room on the slopes for us. Um, but the idea is that uh, that if, if along with uh, shuttle buses, park and rides, transportation hubs, um, uh, if we do the gondola, a lot of the folks who are in the town of government camp won't have to use a car. And people mm-hmm. who are riding mass transit uh, will be able to do, do that conveniently uh, without having to take a car. And so this fits in with some of our overall um, travel improvement plans in and around Mount Hood um, and is uh, hopefully designed to be very uh, pedestrian oriented and mass transit accepting. And um, so, you know, as we go further and, and things get uh, more and more congestion congested, you know, skiers love to have their cars for sure. Yeah. But we need, we need to have options for people who don't want to drive and for people who are living uh, and vacationing in the community of government camp so that they don't have to get back in their vehicle to go skiing and further exacerbate the issues on the road. And if, you know, if we have a good local shuttle system uh, and the gondola, someone who's in a cabin in government camp shouldn't have to be, shouldn't have to get in their car if they don't want to uh, during their entire stay. And, and that's really the goal. And so, you know, government camp has always been very proximate to ski areas, but you're not quite there. And uh, I think uh, this evolution could have it be where you are. Uh, you, there is raison d'etre, as they say, and you are actually there where you can access uh, the activities that you want to do without having to get back in a vehicle. So I want to talk about your summer operations. Uh, Timberline typically has the longest ski season in North America, owing to the Palmer Glacier, which, as you said, is quite difficult to access in the wintertime. But just talk about your summer uh, summer operations and how much of a part of the identity of Timberline that is. Yeah, sure, Stuart. Thanks. And especially for the the skier skiers, uh, the athletes and whatnot, um, we're Mm -hmm. we're known kind of as Mount Hood in that uh, world. but yeah, yeah, it's 
Palmer Snowfield isn't actually a glacier. And the distinction there is a glacier moves, you know, and has crevasses as the ice moves down the hill. And uh, the snowfield is a, basically a big bowl up there, typically has uh, uh, ice and permafrost, if not ice in the bottom of it year round. Uh, you know, that's been uh, challenged a couple times in the last uh, 50 years, uh, last year being one of them. Um, but essentially, uh, the, it, our seasonal snowfall is such that the, the summer just doesn't have time to melt all the snow. And when, when I built the Palmer chairlift in 1996, there's a, there's basically a, 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 a building at the top of it that's, uh, you know, built into the hillside. And we had to design the snow load for the roof. And so we did some measurements in March and there was, there was 40 feet of snow where that building was going to go. And the water density of the snow was 54%. So we built the, we built the, the, the uh, structure to hold 20 feet of, of water. That, so that equates to 1200 pounds a square foot, you know, load bearing on the roof of this building. And the reason I bring that up is, you know, because we're, you know, we have all the Pacific influence here and that's where our weather comes from. The, and and we get cold days and we get warmer days. We get rain on top of snow. We get snow on top of snow, but all of our snow, even the high quality snow has a lot more water in it than you would find in dry climates like Utah or Colorado. Um, and the, the silver lining in that for us, although, you know, it, we don't have the champagne powder per se on most uh, snowstorms, the, the water just, it takes a while for it to melt. And, or uh, the snow takes a while for it to melt. And, you know, with that much snow and that uh, amount of snow, it, you know, by the time summer breaks and, and it's a full on summer in, in June, um, by the time August rolls around, it just really hasn't had time to melt is, is really the deal that now there is the, the, the snow field and the, there's typically been ice on that that lasts, you know, throughout the season. Um, which has been challenged in recent years, uh, but even even with that, and last year was was uh, an extreme year. We had 116 degree temperatures in Portland, and so that weekend in four days on Palmer, we were uh, we were ready to open our freestyle train center up there with 22 foot half pipe and a bunch of jumps and whatnot. And then we we had this strong east wind, about 50 miles an hour. And it was 90 some odd degrees up there on the mountain. Oh, wow. And we lost 15 feet of snow in four days. Oof. And so typically that 15 feet of snow would, would last four weeks. So, yeah. you know, we lost, you know, a, 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 we had obviously had to rebuild the terrain, but we lost a, a lot of our summer from that one extreme event. And, and who knows if those things happen more often, um, hopefully. Hopefully not, but that was uh, an extreme situation. We haven't had 116 degree temperatures in Oregon that I know of ever, and that just seems ungodly to me. So, you know, the the question is always, you know, uh, you know, is the snowfield going away? Is summer skiing going away? And the way I'll put it to you is that, you know, it'll be the last ski area standing in terms <laughs> of snow, um, just just because of the Pacific Ocean and just because of the jet stream where it typically goes and we did have to close we, we chose to close august 15th uh last summer um and we've only closed that early uh, on one or two other occasions since we've 
built the Palmer chairlift. Um, one was to rebuild the Palmer chairlift, so that doesn't okay. really count. And then right. the uh, then we opened late this year. Um, so you know, you add those two things together, and we were from August fifteenth to December twelfth. What is that? Almost four months that we weren't in operation for skiing, which is the longest it's been since we built the Palmer chairlift in nineteen seventy seven. And whether that's a harbinger of things to come or not, I I. I don't know, or if it's a one-off, um, I choose to be optimistic and there, you know, there will be, you know, uh, ski seasons of, uh, one variety, another, uh, for years to come, in my opinion, and, and this will be a good place to do it. You know, looking at a silver lining from last summer, Jeff, is I, I think that because travel was restricted from COVID, a lot of folks really couldn't get out of the United States to go training Europe where they normally would have U.S. ski team members and and so forth. So just talk a little bit about the the new members of the summer skiing community that you welcomed last year. And and uh, now that those folks have discovered Timberline, if you think that, that this might become an option for them for the future. Good question, Stuart. So, you know, Timberline's an official U.S. Uh, ski team training site, um, and we have the Alpine uh, freestyle and moguls type folks up here. Uh, all summer. Uh, and, um, you know, historically, when we first built Palmer, Hank Tauber was the coach of the U.S. ski team. And he uh, worked with my dad and trying to figure out the lift and whatnot. And he was horribly disappointed that he couldn't have the exclusive uh, camp on Mount Hood in the summer. And uh, my dad's business model was to allow anyone to come um, as long as you had insurance and you were willing to buy lift tickets, any organization could come and train. And and what that's done is created a situation where it ebbs and flows. And, and just like anything in any organization, uh, you know, I can uh, remember Mount Gilboa from Minnesota having 250 kids and, and, and now now they aren't here anymore. So, that you know, it just depends on the energy of the champion of the, the organization who's coming. And then things like snowboarding where, you know, um, that didn't exist, you know, much in the 80s. And and uh, the summer snowboard camps were uh, just a bunch of young pioneers who we allowed to, to uh, have their terrain parks. We built them for them up on the mountain and gave them that space. And it, it ended up being an incubation place, basically a laboratory for terrain features that you see in resorts all the time now. And, you know, as a resort operator, you would never build that stuff, not knowing, but having, you know, coaches and camps and supervision over time, we, you know, we created uh, jumps and features that are, uh, I won't use the term standard because there aren't standards in it, but are commonplace in, in resorts. And so by having that model, uh, the, the population, the type of activity going on uh, on the Palmer Snowfield changes from year to year. Uh, in the past, we were, you know, heavily, heavily U.S. ski team. Uh, that kind of went away as they chose to go to uh, Europe and to South America. And uh, in the last couple of years, uh, Tiger Shaw and I uh, hammered out an agreement to get them to uh, uh, have a priority to train at Timberline. It's cheaper and more convenient for them. Um, and and uh, quite frankly, you know, they had sort of gone away, and I, you know, I see it as sort of a responsibility and a duty to help them out, but also it's a, a great place for them to train 
and be here. So to your point, um, oftentimes uh, the U.S. ski team goes to other places. Uh, and because of COVID, uh, the last two summers, uh, all the kind of, you know, even Michaela Schifrin was back up at Timberline um, training, um, not last summer, but the summer before. And so they've, they they kind of came back. But there are people who've been here in the past and people who are familiar with, with Timberline. Uh, and obviously, you know, the Canadians love coming down uh, and training on Palmer, and we didn't have any of those. So while we were really busy with our with our athletes, our domestic athletes, we weren't so much busy with others, and we weren't busy with traveling tourists um, because of COVID as well. So certainly we were busy, um, and it, it, it was a good summer, but uh, not not the the numbers weren't too different from what we've seen in the past, just because it was just a different mix of of folks. Um, but in terms of the athletes and, and racing, you know, we, we, you know, we hope that people had a good time and, and choose to come back in the future, you know, conditions uh, permitting. All right. Well, let's hope for no more 116 degree temperatures in Oregon yeah, next year. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Jeff, let, let's wrap up here by talking about passes. Uh, you do share a, I, we're, we're really in a multi-pass world now where it seems like every big mountain is joining one pass or another. Uh, and you share the Fusion Pass with Mount Hood Ski Bowl. You mentioned there's a number of ski areas on Mount Hood. So just talk about your partnership with Mount Hood Ski Bowl and why you decided to form that pass with them. Yeah, so uh, Ski Bowl's uh, an interesting uh, ski area. It's got four chairlifts. Uh, you know, it's kind of the Arapaho Basin of Mount Hood, if you will. It's kind of the old school, slow list, but good terrain. Uh, but they are further down the mountain uh, and they do have a a, a shorter ski season, but they have uh, steeper slopes, and they've got uh, they've got an amazing night skiing uh, offering where they night mm-hmm. ski seven days a week. Um, nice. And, and so, if you buy a Fusion Pass, uh, you get the length of our season, the dependability of our snow, uh, but you also go on the right right days when we get good powder down uh, on that uh, that uh, steeper train at Ski Bowl. You've got that, and and you've got night skiing. So you. You can ski seven days, seven nights a week, uh, and depending on the conditions, you can be doing aesthetic skiing up on Palmer or night skiing in powder down at, at Ski Bowl at, at 9:30 at night. So it, it's 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 we're we're different enough, and we complemented each other enough that that made a lot of sense. Um, and then you know, as you said, there's all this consolidation and all this past consolidation going on. And so we worked with other small ski areas to come up with the with uh, the Powder Alliance, and they're mainly Western ski areas. We have one in Japan and several in Canada, um, but uh, it allows a, a pass holder to utilize their pass three days at the participating resorts. There isn't uh, a revenue share like you find in Icon or Epic for those who aren't either part of Altera or Vail Resorts. Um, it's just uh, it's just a, a, a benefit to the to the pass holder of the ski area, you know, the home ski area of where that person purchased it, and and we like that. It's been working well. Uh, it gives people some geographic distribution, and whether it's because of weather or snow or their travel habits, it gives them uh, an opportunity to go to different places, and and uh, kind of answers the question of the person who would otherwise buy. Uh, an epic pass or an icon pass and or people who buy multi-passes too. 
So I have to imagine, Jeff, that you have an open invitation from Doug Fish to join the Indy Pass, and he's based right down there in Portland. Uh, have you considered joining the Indy Pass? So Doug uh, is the person we hired to promote our uh, our Powder Alliance Pass, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he uh, had the ad agency uh, that we have a deal with Subaru to to promote our Fusion Pass and Subaru cars, and he was the ad agency of record in that, and so. Doug uh, got pretty familiar with uh, this whole thing and came up with this idea based on what we were doing with even smaller resorts to do the Indy Pass. And so, of course, I was the first person he pitched it to. (laughs) But, um, (laughs) you know, it's we like what we what we have going on. And I you know wish Doug well and his participants well with that. It might might make sense for them, but it's it's not currently in our thought process. Uh, well, it sounds like you certainly have enough going on, Jeff. So uh, I wish you the best of luck with the master plan uh, with this winter. I hope you get tons of snow. I hope the Palmer Snowfield keeps you open. And, and I hope you have to fight shutting down because you have too much snow in September, or October, wh- whenever that happens. So uh, I really cannot thank you enough for your time today, especially right in the middle of the season and, and right between two busy holiday periods. So thank you very much for that, Jeff. And, uh, and I hope to get out there and ski with you at some point. You have an open invitation, Stuart. I appreciated the time with you and uh, uh, good luck and um, see you on the slopes. That's Jeff Constam, president and area operator of Timberline Lodge, Oregon. Awesome job, Jeff. Thank you very much for that. I need to put a Mount Hood run on my schedule, hopefully to ride that new Gandhi. Thank you all very much for listening. The podcast lineup is locked and loaded, and I've got some really good stuff coming your way in the next few months. In no particular order, you can expect conversations with the leaders of the mountain formerly known as Boyne Highlands, Michigan, Tamarack, Idaho, Beaver Mountain, Utah, Snow Ridge, New York, Big Sky, Montana, Summit at Snoqualmie, Washington, Solitude, Utah, and a few more really good ones that I'm lining up and I'm not quite ready to talk about yet. To get those to your inbox the moment they're live, go and subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. The new podcasts appear there several hours before they appear on iTunes or Spotify or any other podcast service. So get a jump on those. The newsletter also includes lots of additional context, videos, photos, trail maps, and more that you will not find on any podcast service. You can also follow along with the storm on Twitter or Instagram at Stormski Journal. Thank you all for listening. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.